Hey there, my name is Madison and I'm one of the pastors at Kainos Church in Portland, Oregon. This teaching you're about to listen to is from one of our Kainos collectives. These gatherings happen once a month, typically the first Sunday of the month, and serve as a time for us to worship together and learn from the scriptures. On the following Sundays of each month, we gather in smaller groups inside homes. We call these Kainos communities. Here we share a meal and discuss the Bible together. For more information about Kainos, feel free to visit kainospdx.org. The hope of Kainos Church is that we are people finding fresh and fulfilled life in Jesus. We are uh, continuing our walk through Exodus, and just to figure out where we are in Exodus, I thought I'd give a quick snapshot. I'm not going to go super in-depth into Exodus uh, because the girls did a great job of that last week, Uh, but at this point, God has kept his promise, and the Israelites are free of their Egyptian oppression. Uh, God's presence now, uh, God has uh, led his people to the base of Mount Sinai, and God's presence has settled on the top of this mountain. Uh, Moses is getting his steps in. He's going up and down this mountain a lot, bringing the word of the Lord to the people. And that brings us to today. We are going to be it. we're going to be all over the Bible today. Uh, but specifically, uh, I'm going to start in Exodus 25. You do not have to turn there. All the scripture will be on the screen, um, including versions and all that. Uh, but uh, but we are going to be kind of in a lot of scripture here today, jumping around. Uh, God spoke to Moses. He said, "Tell the Israelites." that they are to set aside offerings for me. Receive the offerings from everyone who is willing to give. Let them construct a sanctuary for me so that I can live among them. God has led his people to the base of Mount Sinai, which is the fulfillment of a promise. He said, you will worship me at, the, at this very mountain. And so they're here. And now God says, I want to live among you. Uh, it's, it's something that we don't, like in our modern day, uh, to try and understand what it means for God to live among us, uh, it, it, it seems abstract. And so today I'm hoping that what we can do is look back at our ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, and say, what would they have heard in that moment? And what does this mean for us today? Uh, real quick, uh, the Bible describes God, his presence, as being um, omnipresent. Omni meaning, meaning every or all. So God is every present. He is everywhere present. He is all present. God is everywhere all the time. What does that mean? That means that he is cosmically sustaining all things, and yet he is intimately involved in the affairs of humans. He is intimately involved with his people. We see in the Bible that this looks like in the Garden of Eden. Uh, We see that God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. We see this intimacy. We see this uh, literal uh, walking, talking presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Moses and Israel in Exodus 15 are singing of God's mighty power and his provision. Uh, And then in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, we see that the people are terrified. Uh, And all the people were watching and hearing the thunder. So they're seeing God's presence on top of the mountain. They're watching and hearing the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. This is the presence of God that they are experiencing and seeing from a distance. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. 
However, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you will not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Uh, so far, the people are terrified of God's presence. And so uh, God says that he wants them to build a sanctuary so that he can live among them. And that is what we know of and call the tabernacle. Uh, today, I'm going to do a lot of talking about the tabernacle. Hopefully, it won't be the most boring thing you do this week. Uh, there's a lot to go over, lots of symbolism. We will not be covering it all. So if you're like, oh, I totally studied the tabernacle and I love this thing, and oh, he's forgetting that and he's missing that, I'm sorry. We do not have 12 hours. Uh, but I'm going to try and make some really, really... Uh, I think they're exciting connections that the biblical authors are making for us. And that if we can catch this pattern, I think it really does uh, bring some, I think it really refreshes our understanding of what it means for God to live among his people. So the tabernacle, you can think of the tabernacle as a sort of mobile Eden. That's the point of today. If you could understand the tabernacle, understand that it is a mobile Eden. Uh, God delivers uh, over the course of uh, Exodus 25 through 31, over the course of these six chapters, uh, God delivers a series of seven speeches. They are uh, with a brief, uh, important interlude uh, in between 32 and thir uh, for 32 and 34, and then we actually see the execution of God's instructions, okay? So that's the rest of Exodus. It's the instructions for how to build the tabernacle, a brief interlude, and then the people actually executing the instructions that God gives them. So we'll pick it up again in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you, are, you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yawns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, uh, goat skins, uh, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, uh, onyx stones and stones made for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So God is uh, giving Moses instructions on how to build something based on something Moses is also seeing. Uh, God is showing him something, and, and he is giving him instructions based on that. Uh, uh, one thing I want us to see is that some of these items are mentioned in the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis 2.12, we read that the land, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium. I assume that's how you say that word. And the onyx stone are there as well. And so we're starting to already see some connections to uh, Eden here. So let's jump into the tabernacle, what it looks like, some of the descriptions of what God is showing and telling Moses. So I'm going to have an image up here quite a bit of the time. We're going to start at the entryway of the tabernacle and work our way back. I figured that was the easiest way to understand this thing. God goes into incredible detail about the description of the material, the length, the width, the height. He goes into how many, exactly how many numbers of loops each curtain should have. Uh, he goes into how the framing for the structure should be built. He gives them uh, instructions on what designs to be woven into the curtains at different spots. Uh, he talks about the placement and exactly where the placement is supposed to be. 
uh, both of the items and of this center structure here. Uh, and then he actually gives them instructions on when to set it up. He gives them instructions on how to build it in terms of uh, certain pieces are meant to be hammered out of one, one solid piece of gold rather than many pieces coming together. Uh, so let's start the, with the out, outer uh, area is called the outer court. This is the court of the tabernacle. It's described in Exodus 27. Again, God gives us a description of the walls, the number of pillars, how they should be constructed, how far apart, all of that. Then we get, walk in the entryway and we see the, the bronze altar. The bronze altar is further explained in Leviticus, um, what it's used for. But in summary, sacrifices are made on this altar often and very specifically for various purposes. The general idea around the sacrificial system is that the sacrifice itself absorbs the person or people, uh, the sin of the person or the people that it is meant to represent uh, so that the person or the people can be cleansed, okay? So the bronze altar is the first thing we hit. Then the next thing we see is the bronze basin. This is for washing, uh, for the priests to wash their hands before performing the sacrificial ritual or before entering the structure here in the center. Uh, once we uh, get into the structure, this is called, this is the actual tabernacle. So the, the whole thing is referred to as a tabernacle, but this is the tabernacle or tent of meeting is this piece in the middle. Uh, as we enter in there, the first thing that we see on the right is the, tabern uh, the table for bread. Again, lots of symbolism here, uh, but the bread is meant to be refreshed weekly. So it's not like when you walk into a Starbucks and you see the, the burrito thing they have there that's been sitting there for weeks. You're sure of it because it's almost blue. It's not like that. Every week before the Sabbath on, on a Friday, they're going to make the bread. They're going to replace it, uh, the bread in the, um, uh, on the table, and it's going to be there for the rest of the week until the following Friday. So that is kept up uh, often. Uh, the bread is meant to represent uh, the tribes of Israel. So there's going to be 12 loaves on there. And, uh, you know, there are some really cool connections to, like, you know, Jesus when he says that he is the bread of life. There's some really cool stuff that you can connect here. We don't have time for that, unfortunately. Uh, the next thing you see right across from the table of bread is the lampstand, uh, or as it would be called by many people, the menorah. Uh, this is described in Exodus 25. Uh, Exodus 25, 31 through 40 said, you, says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lamp, lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the branch, uh, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give their light on the space in front of it, on the table of bread. Um, its tongs and their trays shall be pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern 
for them, which is being shown to you on this mountain. So this is what we just described since there was a lot of calyxes and other things. We described something like this. If you Google uh, the golden lampstand, menorah, you are going to find thousands and thousands of images and none of them are going to look the same. You're going to find a lot of different things. Uh, I like this one because I felt like it showed the budding of the flowers and it kind of illustrates the point of the lampstand is to really uh, be a symbol of the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. So I felt like this one really showed sort of this tree feeling. Uh, As you can see, there are seven branches. Lamps are set to light the space in front of it, which would have been the table of bread. Uh, And the uh, priests are meant to keep it lit day and night. So every morning they would go in, they'd relight it. In the evening, they would go in and relight it. Uh, The next uh, item we walk into is the altar of incense, which is right here. Uh, And the altar of incense is represented, uh, is supposed to represent the prayers of the Israelites going up continually. The the continuous uh, prayers of the Israelites going up to to God. Um, Also, uh, the incense, because it's meant to be burning continually, there is a constant, uh, the priests are constantly going in there and making sure that the incense is going. The next uh, thing we run into is the veil. The veil is super important. Exodus 26, 31 through 35 says, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, yarns, yarns. That's what y'all are doing, right? Just kidding. Some of these, some of these passages are dense, but uh, Hopefully after today, they won't be as dense because you'll be like, oh, I get what's happening here. Uh, uh, So scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the Ark of the Testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place. So this first, oh, sorry. I'll show you in a second when we come back to the image. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. Uh, so <clears throat> we, uh, so the veil is meant to uh, separate the most holy place from the holy place. Um, here's what's really cool. In Genesis 3.24, it says, so he drove the man out, and at the, that's not the cool part. That's not, that's like the bad part of the story. Uh, but at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned each direction to guard the way. And so it seems like what the biblical authors want us to see is that cherubim seem to mark the entrance to the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence is dwelling. So we'll go back to the image here. So most holy place, holy place. We next see the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, stick with me. A couple more verses here. Uh, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you, and you shall put into the ark of the, testi- uh, the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits, 
shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other. On one piece with the mercy, uh, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another uh, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is what we're talking about right here. This is an image of the ark. Uh, this one is, uh, you know, there are, again, many, many, many versions of the ark you'll find if you go Google it. I just kind of picked this one because it was the clearest, I felt like. Uh, so uh, inside, it keeps talking about there's going to be the testimony in there. The testimony is the Ten Commandments. It was the terms of the covenant that God and Israel had made. Uh, we read in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The reason I bring this up is because if you would have walked into any other temple, in any other space, you would have walked in and seen an idol. You would have seen a physical represent, representation of this God that people supposedly worshipped. And yet when you walk into the most holy place, you're not going to find an image that's meant to represent the God of the universe. You're going to find an empty mercy seat. And God is going to meet there. And, what, uh, and the beautiful thing is it's because God had already made his own image in people. And so when the priest walks in, the priest is the image of God as God is meeting with the priest. So in Exodus 40, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabern tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter, enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we see the tabernacle again here. It's okay. Uh, and so the cloud that was over Mount Sinai moves and settles over the most holy place and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Uh, so what we see is God wants to dwell with his people. Uh, and so he has them build this sanctuary for them and he fills this temple with his presence. So we see that the most holy place is the place where God's presence is most intense. Uh, we talk about uh, the priests. Uh, the, this goes into describing the priest's garments, and that's in Exodus uh, 28. And then in Exodus 29, it goes over describing the process for consecrating Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. Uh, and Leviticus will later describe their role in a lot more detail and what that's meant to look like. But the language used for the priests and the priesthood is that they are to work and to keep the temple. So the only people that can go into this structure at all are the priests, and the priests can go into the holy place to work and keep it. They're lighting the incense. Uh, they're lighting the candles. They're, you know, taking care. They're replacing the bread. They're taking care of all of this. And then once a year, the high priest is the only person who is able to enter into the Ark of the Covenant. And so that person will enter into the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the sins of the people. Uh, in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. So what we are finding is that 
the tabernacle being a pattern after the Garden of Eden and after God's creation in Eden, uh, Adam and Eve were the first priests over God's presence and over the area where God's presence uh, overlapped with earth. Um, the, there are additional instructions in here for how to make the oil exactly, how to make the anointing oil. Uh, there's a spe- specific uh, instructions on how the anointing oil is to be used and consequences for if somebody tries to copy it. Uh, Exodus 31, uh, then God chooses some craftsmen. He's already equipped people in the uh, congregation to uh, actually build these things, and so God names them. Uh, and then the last speech God gives is to reiterate the Sabbath. He wants to make it very clear. You're going to be building this thing, but I still want you to take a break on the seventh day, uh, which is pretty cool. So there's a pattern. We've been talking about a pattern. There's tons of Eden imagery here um, uh, in the tabernacle's blueprints, but the pattern doesn't stop there. First of all, again, we see the rhythm that God creates the uh, creates everything in six days and then he rests on the seventh. And so then we see that in this uh, rhythm that God uses to, he speaks seven times. So there's this rhythm of seven happening. But then we see that there are stages to the place where God's presence will live, where his presence will dwell. And so in Genesis 2, 8 and 9, uh, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Uh, I never, uh, I don't know about you, but I, you know, you read fast and you just overlook things. I have never, ever seen the word in there. Uh, And so God uh, planted a garden in Eden. Eden is a region, a space, a place, and there is a garden within Eden. I always think garden of Eden, right? Anyone else today years old when you saw that there is an Eden region. So, uh, and there he put the man he had formed and out of the ground, the Lord God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so what we see in the garden of Eden is that there is, uh, there is a region called Eden. And within that region, there is a space, a garden that we usually refer to as the garden of Eden, right? There's a garden And then there is a specific place in the middle of the garden where the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, are. And so you can understand this as the hot spot, as the Bible project would say, the hot spot of God's presence, where heaven and earth overlap in such a way that God's presence exists there. And so here's the part of the pattern I really am hoping that we'll all see and that'll like excite us. It excited me. So we see in the tabernacle, we have the outer court. In Eden, we have, and in Eden is a region, right? And then at Sinai, we see a similar pattern where the people are at the base of a mountain. Then next we see that as we move forward through the, into the tabernacle space, we reach the holy place. And only some people are allowed to go in there. at, the, at, the, at Mount Sinai, we see that only Moses, Aaron, and 70 elders could go up to the middle section of the mountain. And then here we see that there's a garden in the middle of Eden, right? So then we go one more step, and we see that there is a third place called the most holy place. Only one person is able to go there once a year, and that is the intense, most intense place where God's presence lives and dwells among his people. 
We see the, a similar thing at Mount Sinai where only Moses is able to go up to the top and that is the most intense place of God's presence. Remember, the people were afraid as they looked out from afar and we see that again in the Garden of Eden. So we see this, uh, this pattern. The tabernacle is meant to be a pattern of Eden. And the reason that this is so cool and just so amazing is like, what we realize is that God is not trying to run from his people or get his people all dressed up so that, he can, uh, so that they can be with him. He is trying to make his home with people. He is trying to make his home with people and he's doing everything he can to make that possible. And spoiler alert, there's no limits to what he can do to make that possible. So then we see Jesus. And Jesus breaks the pattern. This guy always breaks the pattern. In John 1.14, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as, the only, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word for dwelt here means to live in a tent. The uh, gospel writer John is purposely pulling on this tabernacle language of being in a tent to show that Jesus is now the hot spot, the most intense place where God's presence exists on earth. And so wherever Jesus goes, the people are experiencing the glory and the presence of God. The sacrifices were meant to absorb the sins of the people so that they could be clean and, uh, and experience the presence of God. Jesus now is absorbing the sins in his death so that the space around him can be clean, so that the people who come to him can be cleansed. Jesus is a walking, talking, mobile Eden. John 1.29 says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matthew 27.50 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. So eventually, the Israelites found a place called Canaan that God sent them to, and that became their home. And eventually, there was a temple built. And they modeled it exactly after the tabernacle. So there was an outer court. I shouldn't say exactly. They modeled it after the tabernacle, but they added things. And if you look up pictures, you know, there, again, there's, you're going to see new things added. But there's an outer court. There's a holy place and there's a most holy place separated by a veil, uh, just like we were used to seeing in the tabernacle. And so when Jesus dies, that veil is torn, signifying that, the, that now anybody can go into the most holy place because Jesus has, uh, has replaced the temple in that sense. So then Jesus says, uh, in John 16, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 17, Jesus is praying and he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me to, into the world, so I have sent them. I'm sending them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. We hear this language that is used to consecrate Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. Jesus is 
the ultimate high priest. And he is able to go into the most holy place and he's able to replace that system and structure so that we can access God without being a high priest. So uh, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive, again, this is Jesus saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What I want us to see is that Jesus is sending us. So Jesus, this walking, talking, mobile Eden, is passing the baton, in a sense, to his followers to be walking, talking, mobile Edens. And when the Holy Spirit comes into the follower of Christ, that the presence of God is dwelling inside of them. Acts 2 says... When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, all, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's go back to Exodus 40 where it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. They would pack up and they'd start walking. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For throughout their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so we see this contrast, this uh, comparison being made, this parallel being made uh, from Luke in Acts. He's saying that when the day of Pentecost came, tongues of fire, God has placed tongues of fire on them. We see that uh, the uh, presence of God in this tongue of fire, right, is being placed on the people signifying that the Lord is filling that temple. So then humans become Many Edens. Humans become walking, talking, many Edens. Hebrews 9 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which the golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff, which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atoning cover. But about these things, we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, uh, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the, the divine worship. But the second... Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been, yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, uh, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This passage is saying that Jesus, the great high priest, the ultimate high priest made a way so that we could uh, have full access to God so that we could grab the baton and continue being walking, talking, mobile, mini Edens everywhere we go. And so there is this idea that when we step into a place, we bring the presence of God, we bring the gospel into that place, we bring the power uh, to cleanse, we bring the ability to uh, work and to keep every space that we come into contact with. First Peter says, uh, chapter 2, it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of, uh, but rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own succession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, I'll have the worship team, worship crew come up. We, uh, if you are in this room or out of this room and you are a follower of Christ, you are chosen. You are a royal, you are part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are a part of his people so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and brought you into the light. Him who has given you access to the presence of God. Him who has given you the presence of God. So today happens to be Pentecost Sunday. 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the Israelites would celebrate, the Jewish people would celebrate Pentecost. And today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus and the day uh, that the disciples received the Holy Spirit. As followers of Jesus, we are a part of his royal priesthood and we have been empowered as such. We are being sent into the world to work it and to keep it to work and to keep every space we walk into so that the presence of God can exist in that place. To create rule and rest. To bring the wisdom of God to the brokenness of the world. It's not by accident that you exist in the Portland, Oregon, Vancouver area (laughs) in 2022. Uh, It's not an accident that you have the job you have, you are in the family you're in. It's not an accident you go to the coffee shop you go to uh, on your way to work. It's not an accident that you are in school and that these things are not accidents. These are opportunities for you to go into a place and to work and keep it so that the presence of God can exist in that place and that people around you can experience God. God lives among his people. In you, God lives in the world in you. The world does not need to visit a specific building or a geographic location. They need to see you. The image of God sitting next to them. The world needs you. Exodus 33 says, 
Um, Ryan, can you go click to this? I'm not sure if I have a slide for this. I don't have a slide for this. Uh, Exodus 33 says, and he said, my presence, this is uh, uh, God saying this to Moses, and he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. By the way, he's saying this after Israel uh, committed quite a blunder. Uh, I've never said those words in my life. Quite a blunder. (laughs) Israel messed up. They built a calf out of gold and God says to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? As followers of Jesus, may we be like Moses and recognize that it is the presence of God that's dwelling within us that makes us distinct from the world. And so when we go into these places, We are going in with God. And if God does not take us in there, then there's no place for us there. But if God moves us and wants to partner with us in the world, he's going to do it through you as you are obedient and going into those places and recognizing that you are a royal, a part of a royal priesthood and that you bring the presence of God everywhere you go.